Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Uh, I'm Ed Marion, as usual, uh, trying to stay out of trouble as your host, and alongside me I have uh, two of the finest sports writers in, in London, slash England, slash Europe, slash the world. To my left, Miguel Delaney, Chief of Writer of The Independent. Hello. Hello. And uh, a second podcast appearance, uh, as I remember it, possibly third, no, third podcast appearance. It's, it's at least three. Uh, for the Wall Street Journal's Joshua Robinson. Hello. Thanks for having me. Hello. Uh, the first one was France versus Argentina in Kazan in I Russia. Bu- I believe that was done in a parking lot. That, that <laughs> was uh, after one of one of the great games. One uh, of the greatest games I've ever seen is a neutral. The greatest for my money. Um, sweating profusely in, in the Tatastan sun. And then the second one, I guess, would have been the Super Classico that wasn't. Yes, that's right. Um, and today, you're here to discuss Man United Tottenham, um, your new book, The Club, and a load of other things. Um, but let's get started, as we said, with Wembley, where you both were yesterday. That's correct. Yeah. Um, Manchester United beat Tottenham, Miguel. Uh, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is the new messiah. Yeah. What do you really take away from yesterday? What do you think was the, the big thing that you walk away from that game and you're like... I didn't know this before, but I know this now. Well, Solskjaer managed the game well, and I think for the fir- it was basically the first fixture where they kind of needed some kind of game, cl- game plan because what's happened so far, they've had a, lo- a lot of easy games, and also it's been the natural reaction of very good players who are finally released from the kind of neurotic paranoia of the previous manager. So it's been actually hard to say how much of an impact Solskjaer has. I really enjoy the fact that we still don't say his name. Yeah. yeah. The previous manager. The previous manager, yeah. The, the Portuguese man. Um <laughs> But yesterday there was an identifiable plan, and I think it, it was executed quite well to an extent. But ultimately, the game still came down to David De Gea. Like Spurs, back, it could really have been three or four one. Spurs, I mean, Spurs were good, but you know, uh, I guess the whole thing. There are several points where the game could have changed. Uh, the, the offside goal in the first half, uh, injuries to Sissoko and and Kane, but. I felt the Spurs maybe, like, this was there for them. And if they had won it, then it would be, you know, obviously a huge statement kind of for the Pochettino, United, Solskjaer stuff. But it just would have kind of cemented them as a team that actually has a bit more substance about them. And again, like, this United team knocking them off at Wembley is a bit of a setback for Spurs. Absolutely. And, And you could see kind of the moment where they lost belief. It was about 20 minutes from the end after one of the, the multitude of incredible De Gea saves, you could look around and just know they're not going to score today. De, De Gea is going to continue doing this. Um, and it, it was, there was just not enough, there, there wasn't a new idea coming out of Spurs at that point. And I don't think Pochettino had the options on his bench either. You've probably both seen more United than me this season, but I don't think De Gea's had one of it. It's probably in his worst season since his first season in England. Is that right? Is that fair? Uh, maybe, and there was a little bit of a hangover from the World Cup where he had a few issues. Um, where he also made a lot of. Well, he still uh, has issues at international yeah, level. Like yeah, yeah. In Spain, they are 
far from convinced by him. Well, actually, just so, so, well, while we were coming up to the show, someone from Spain texted me and he read, read the piece this morning and says, no one in Spain thinks that uh, the gay is the best in the world. No, they don't. <laughs> they were calling for it to, be, to be dropped after the, the first game of the World Cup. Yeah, right, and, and they're watching Jan Oblak every week. Yeah, right. of course. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's not just that. Like, they, in Spain particularly, like, they take against the goalkeeper very quickly. And... I think they they would literally just rather have Casillas back because there's such a clamour for him. He's got so many friends in the media. But even Kepa, I think Kepa was the one they were calling for during the World Cup. And you look at it and it's like, okay, it's not been his best season. But that yesterday was a match-defining, match-winning, match-saving performance from a goalkeeper, which they I don't I can't remember him putting in one of those earlier on this season. No, uh, absolutely, and it's it's um. We kind of forgot that he was capable of that during the World Cup. I, th- I seem to remember that he actually conceded more goals than he made saves in Russia, um, <laughs> and it, it was it was he was unrecognizable. And yesterday was kind of the reminder of, look at this guy who's not just an incredible goalkeeper. He he, may, he makes it really fun to watch as well yeah. because of his style as well. You know, he's I, I've often said that he's kind. He, He's kind of the ultimate five-a-side keeper because of how he how he yeah, gets yeah. around on his line, how he makes saves with his feet. I saw a stat this morning that he he leads the league in percentage of saves with his feet. It's about fourteen percent. And that but that speaks to basically <clears throat> he gets in the right positions and gets a body part. Yeah. Well, it was also I mean in that sense for the first time in a while actually it was a it was actually United twenty seventeen eighteen performance in the sense that. They got the results mainly because he pulled off ridiculous saves. I remember I was reading some stat last season. Well, um, basically all the numbers suggested that United would have been way off second and way off the, the points that they got had it not been for De Gea. He basically did inflate Mourinho's second season. Um, and something that, and one of the reasons I ultimately caused Mourinho the job because that stopped happening this season. So this was a return to form in that regard. But there's been a bit of a debate out of it, I suppose, prompted by Solskjaer almost, who talked about the best goalkeeper in the world the best goalkeeper in Manchester United's history. But one of the kind of strands of that, I mean, Josh is a, a goalkeeper, actually, who plays, always plays yeah, yeah. In, our, in our media five-a-sides, or six-a-sides, if you will, in that sport. There, there is this debate about whether the guy can be considered one of the best in the world, given the type of goalkeeper is. Now, he's almost now, it's become, got to the point a little bit with the whole Ederson and Allison thing, where he's dismissed as just a shot-stopper and couldn't maybe play in more modern, sophisticated teams because he doesn't have the footwork. Where, 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 where do you stand on that? Um... It's an interesting question because you're right. We we are sort of in the midst of this discussion about are Allison and Ederson the the kind of future of the the whole position that you you know there are teams even experimenting with having keepers come out and slot in between the two center backs. Mm-hmm. I mean it's it's you know De Gea is really kind of a throwback in that mm-hmm. way because he is a, a fantastic shot stopper. But you know and that is his main job. We had this conversation maybe. A year ago, about Lloris as well, mm. um, you know, before he started making a string of mistakes. But he's a guy who was seen as a kind of a, a dinosaur as well, and uh, between the sticks, because he wasn't as proactive and he wasn't, and he clearly wasn't as comfortable. But with United, that's not a team that wants their keeper to play out a out with the ball at his feet. Um, they haven't invited that from him, and frankly, there's I, I don't see a reason why they should. Yeah. When you look at this game, I think you've got to look at Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, um, the weirdly on loan manager from Mulder. And this is, I mean, after. Like <laughs> Mulder's Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. The whole thing's just bizarre, isn't it? But after five wins against. you know, Six of our competitions, though. Huddersfield and, and those sorts of teams. This is mm. his first significant win. This is his first really tough opponent 
what do you make of him as a as a coach? Like, what do you, what do you what do we think so far? So, like, my thing yesterday is, um, and the piece I've written for lunchtime today is about the style of football, essentially mm. the fact that he he kind of changed from. I mean, it's not difficult to change from Mourinho's style, which is pretty old fashioned now, the reactive uh, kind of deep stayed kind of sterile attack that they had before and then you know he's what he's trying to do is he's trying to attack with speed he's trying to attack on, on the counter which is kind of a very Ferguson thing you know if you look at all the great United goals kind of through the 90s and mid 2000s it's sweeping counter attacks whether that's the Giggs Beckham Skulls era or if that's the Ronaldo Nani Tevez era and then you saw that yesterday they, they had more what opt to qualify as fast breaks than they'd had in what I can't remember what the stat was the first 17 games of the season mm. under Mourinho combined which is quite telling and, and they score the goal they, they win the goal back the ball back high up the field and within 8 seconds I think Johnny wrote in his piece they scored Yeah, uh, they got speed with Rashford they got speed with Martial they got speed with Lingard uh, Lukaku didn't have his best game I think it's fair to say but with those guys there it's kind of a more modern, yeah. like Fergie counter attack approach. In, in that, like, you know, Fergie Fergie's team would sit deep and mm. then spring on the counter, whereas they were pressing high. You know, that's how they won the ball. That's how they, they scored the goal. But do we think that you know this is obviously this result, as we said, is fortunate? Spurs could have scored three or four. Yeah. Do you think that this this style is something that's going to prove successful? For Solskjaer? Yeah, even allowing for Spurs, like um, playing so well second half and De Gea basically preventing what could have been a bad beating. I think there is already transparent evidence, particularly from the first half, that maybe Solskjaer is much more of a, a much better hands-on coach than people are willing to give him credit for. Now there, again, there's a danger. Things could level out. It could, it could go wrong. But maybe just because of the Cardiff job as much as anything and the way he came into it and, you know, and, and even his demeanour, in fact, he's so delighted to be in the job, there's a sense to kind of... It's a little bit too easy to write him off as a bit of a joke figure when he's clearly not. There's clearly much more there. A lot of people around United and the players spoke of the level of tactical work they did while they were in Dubai in the last week. That it was much, and it was actually said. And I don't think this is completely down to just willing to uh, have a go at the last manager now he's gone. But it was much more intricate than some of Mourinho stuff. Uh, and maybe there's actually more a wider question here over whether at this point it's harder to manage a club like Cardiff who are in that situation than it is to manage a kind of a super club who were reinforced by so many players in that way. And, f- and to be fair, Ferguson did warn Salter at the time not to take that job because he didn't think it could go any other way. So I think already... Sounds like a piece you should write this week. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think there's... A, no matter how it ends, I think there's maybe... The one thing you can say is that Solskjaer is a much better coach than people are willing to give him credit for. Also, I hear that he delegates very well. And you can actually see a bit of a... Particularly in Rashford... There's a tangible improvement in his game, even the way he finishes. And I think that that's obviously something that Solskjaer has direct experience of and has used to kind of transmit that experience. Well, the players like it. Paul Popper said yesterday, you know, he's enjoying his football. This, I'm attacking, which is what I should be doing. This is what I've always been good at. Um, he said that Solskjaer had told him to get into the box and score goals like Frank Lampard. It's, that doesn't seem like the most complex coaching talk I've ever heard. But it's, it, you know, simplicity sometimes is, is what you need. Exactly, and and I think we've spoken about this before, especially around Zidane. Um, but it's the question of maybe a generational one about whether uh, you know when you go into a to a super club like United, like Real Madrid, whether you know what the players there actually need. Do they need uh, a sort of cerebral tactician, or do they need sometimes an ex-player who gets it, who knows what it's like to play um, play for a club of that size, and and 
just give them what they need in terms of uh, even enthusiasm, encouragement. Um, I'm curious to hear what you think about this. The, qu the, the question as well with Solskjaer, right, is you see this impact now. But if you think that he hasn't necessarily got much substance behind him, it's when they, if they hire him permanently and then in 18 months' time they go for a tough patch, does he have any substance to it? Yeah, that's what, and, and also maybe it's the way he responds to when it inevitably happens there's kind of two or three bad results in a row this season. And that's when you see maybe a little bit more metal. Because then it's about figuring out what next, which actually was one of the major problems Mourinho ended up having, that he only ever had one response to bad spells, which he'd never experienced really before 2000 and. 15 and that was just to be as drastic as possible and just ended up kind of further eroding the team and maybe it just comes back to the point about being an ex-player in that way and it's just that maybe it's a subconscious thing with, with, with players well sorry not just an ex-player but an ex-champion and in the moment and it didn't um dominic have a, he gave you an interesting quote before about the effect of zidane in that regard but yeah that's right when i when i spoke to him about zidane he was like you know, it's it's not anything he necessarily does, but he carries this aura about him, and the players know about what he's been through. They know that he's he's been a winner, and for guys who grew up in you know in the '90s now, that's the generation we're talking about. Often that carries more weight, and you know, it, there's there's a lot going with that as well. You know, they're making more money than ever before. Um, they were probably you know more informed fans growing up than than was ever possible before, um, and and that. You know, it takes someone to also understand the the culture of being a player. Uh, also, in that there was when towards the end of Mourinho, actually throughout Mourinho's time, it was kind of tedious debate about how good the United squad was, mainly because he was kind of playing them all down. He was playing them down all the time. Um, but I think that was a self-serving argument because ultimately, and this comes back to what you're getting to, a club like United, because of the wages, because of potential resources, that, like that is such a high-level squad. That there is, there is an element of getting them to a point where, no matter who you put out, if they're allowed, if they're allowed to kind of express themselves or play in a certain structure, it will be good. It might not be title winning, but it, it should be enough to get them to a certain level. And after that, it takes a few tweaks. Well, should, it, should is the big word with Manchester. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you know, they, financially, they have enough money to buy, uh, to make a Paul Pogba signing, like a, a ninety million pound signing more than everyone mm. else every season. That's the point. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, just, there was one thing yesterday that stood out for me actually in terms of Solskjaer and effect where he spoke about Rashford's finish and how he expected him to go to the near post but he went for the more difficult quality going for the far post and it's something he has kind of hands-on worked at Rashford and it did remind of kind of what, what, what apparently Ferguson was brilliant at and you have to imagine Solskjaer has picked this up directly was little not 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 just the macro management and the kind of delegation and all that, but also the micro management. He was brilliant at little tips. Like there's there's a little Henning Berg's autobiography is actually very good in this. He'd ha he'd always talk about Ferguson kind of taking <laughs> the side. <laughs> <for> <laughs> and yeah, absolutely stunned. One of the worst, one of the worst performances I've seen by any team was <laughs> was the Black Bear team coached by Henning Berg. <laughs> well, but Henning Berg was very good on no and how like if you're facing Robbie Keane or someone. Ferguson would have a lit, just he'd always have that little snippet that he'd pull out from his database of mind. Right, he's a player that always goes that way, so you do this, and it, it would always come out in a game. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's I guess the thing that you are seeing a lot of the Ferguson touches with, with Solskjaer. Is a discussion I was just having uh, with our sports news editor actually is, you know, that there is this sort of now like it, it's it's very obvious with Solskjaer. I mean, there's almost like a hankering. For to go back to the sort of Ferguson thing, it's like that's what has brought Man United success. Since he left, they've tried three different managers. You know, a, a Scottish guy, a Dutch guy, and a Portuguese guy. 
all three of them kind of different styles, different personalities, and, and none of it's worked. And you feel like this is almost more of a move to get back to the only thing they know, because for 25 years, whatever, 23 years, that's the only thing that, that brought them success. Right, and, and that's why they were all saying yesterday, you know, we're Man United again. And it's... I, I don't think it's necessarily it's just a subconscious thing. I think it is quite explicit in many ways. You know, Solskjaer was a prodigious taker of notes under uh, under under Fergie. He you know, logged training sessions, committed all this to paper because he knew he would he would want to do this down the line. Yeah. And and he's not the only one. There are a few of the more cerebral players do that as well. I remember Chabi Alonso telling me that he logged every training session having played for the great managers in the game today. Um so it, it makes perfect sense for Man United, and for a club that was in need of such a, an emotional lift as well, it's the obvious solution. And if we're talking about this game, uh, are, there, are there any on-field points, Miguel, that you want to make before we move into the off-field stuff? Because this game, like you know, the build-up to it, as as you wrote, was as much about the you know obviously the Pochettino versus Solskjaer thing. Uh, the Man United job is expected to be up for grabs in June the the kind of transition like Spurs are a club trying to chase down they're trying to hunt down teams like Man United but they've got the stadium issues and they've been held back and can they hold on to their stars and all. there's so much off field stuff but on field is there anything else I want to say yeah, well it's all basically related to that I mean Spurs again despite yesterday been another frustrating setback and that you feel like should be making that step I think the fact they're so high in the league is a credit to Pochettino team because really given their resources they shouldn't be because this squad at the moment is being completely pushed to the limit. They don't really have a midfield. They now have an issue. The, the hope is Kane isn't injured. They lost two, two yeah. to injury yesterday. Yeah. Although they're looking, they're looking Kane's face from people that know him. They're, they're worried, basically. And there's already talk that could be the injury that he, he got last, or was it last season. It was there for four weeks. Um, the, the hope is that, is that happening. Because if it does happen, <laughs> Levy has to do something he really doesn't want and properly invest this January. They, but already, they do need reinforcements now. And this, of course... Well, they weren't planning to get any, were they? No, but, um, but, but that's the thing. Yeah, they, they did need a midfielder already. Um, but this fee, this feeds into the wider debate, I suppose, about Spurs. And something I suppose we'll get, in, we'll get onto with Josh's book, given it's about, the, the, I suppose, essentially the growth, of, uh, the financial aspect of the, the, business the, Premier League, yeah, the Premier League as much as anything. But, um, I mean, ultimately, like, if it's a sort of game where I could finally convince Pochettino to leave in the sense that, all right, he has a team. He wants to go further. He needs a midfielder. He goes. He goes to Levy. Okay. Well, he can have the maybe the five million we get from Dembele potentially going to China. Whereas Manchester United, think, well, here's two hundred million, and we, we can buy you a ninety million pound player every, every summer if you want. Yeah, and that that thing with Kane uh, is really interesting to me because if Kane is out for any period of time, I mean, how, how many years has he been in the team now scoring goals? Um, Since twenty four. He he may he got this proper big break. Although Cher would have given him kind of his first initial breakthrough, it was the winter, sorry, the autumn of 2014 when he broke into the team properly. So this is his fourth full season of being like the yeah. guy, right? Yeah. He's only really had one or two injuries that I can remember. He's been very reliable. And they've hugely re- like lent on him because they haven't had, you know, they brought in um, oh, it was, uh, Vincent Janssen, terrible, Fernando Llorente to, bre- to be the backup to yeah. him. Because they, they were like, well, we've only had one striker, and if he goes down, we're in all sorts of trouble. Now, those two guys have proven that if Kane goes down, they're still in trouble. And Llorente um, might be able to leave for Athletic, um, athletic Club uh, in Bilbao, his old club. So, I expect 
that Kane will be okay. I hope he'll be okay. If he's out for any length of time, given the financial realities of this new stadium and the problems that the Spurs have had, what does Daniel Levy do? Uh, well, as Miguel said, the thing he really doesn't want to do is spend money, but Levy's going to have to sort of hunker down and now accept that, that you know, this is the situation we're in. And it's it's much like Arsenal sort of after their stadium, uh, their stadium construction in 2006 through to about 2010. The austerity years are going to be very harsh. Um, and it's just going to be, guys, we have to make do with, with what we have. And if Kane, who is plan A, B, and C, isn't available, then, you know, that might translate to a slide that they're going to have to accept. Just before Christmas, there was an interesting moment. There was a press conference. And the issue Dembele came up, and this was before. It, it was known he was probably going to move soon, but not definite. And this was already when the midfield issues arose. And um, one of the guys, I think it was Dan Kilpatrick from Standard, goes to, um, he, he asks Poch what, what, what the story is with Dembele. You know, his contract's up in the summer. Will you keep him till the summer, or will you sell in January? And uh, <laughs> Poch just with a chuckle goes, what do you think Daniel will do? If, if an offer comes in in January... <laughs> it's gone, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, 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 you know, especially with the, um, the context of Christian Eriksen not having signed a new mm. contract. So his runs out next summer, right? 2020. Yeah. Which means that you need to sell him in, in the summer of 2019. And there's a lot of talk Spurs are already planning for, for that happening. Yeah. So they're going to need a big midfielder. <coughs> if they have to go out and sign um, a striker of note this month, because... That's what Kane's injury would necessitate. If Kane is out for any period of time, mm. that seriously jeopardises their Champions League qualification hopes. Financially, the Champions League qualification is absolutely essential with the new stadium. Mm. Right? So, I, I mean, and that's before you even get into who it would be, because I haven't got a clue. I don't know what you'd go and do. If, when Bournemouth were asking for 75 million for Callum Wilson, yeah. I don't know what Spurs would do to try and replace Harry Kane. Especially because they can't actually buy a strike. Even if they had the money, they can't buy a direct someone as good on Kane's level because uh, you'd need to buy a versatile forward yeah. like Sun so yeah. like Sun is obviously away at the Asian Cup now right he's mm. after this game yeah, he's yeah. going away um, and is it, is it they have to win for him to avoid military service no, that, that, that oh, was that's, a, already, yeah, that's yeah, the one in the summer yeah, yeah. right okay so that's fine but he's away at the Asian Cup who plays up front for them if yeah, Lucas Moura is the suggestion Lucas Moura is the striker yeah so if you bought in a, a good versatile attacker, someone who, who next season maybe would play wider as like a, hmm. a support player to Kane, but can fill the void for a little bit, that might make sense. But buying an out-and-out striker almost isn't an option because you're saying to them, you're a stopgap, yeah. and then next year you're going to be the backup. And their record of buying backup strikers for Kane is abysmal. Yeah, I mean, it's like quite you know coincidental, but what they need is essentially a Solskjaer. Yeah, no, it's, it's not the worst. Not the worst idea. How do you see the the managerial thing now? So Solskjaer versus Pochettino. Uh, what do you expect? You know, who would you? If you were, I guess it's different questions. If you were Manchester United, who would you hire in June? Who do you expect Manchester United to hire in June? It's still, from what I've heard, Pochettino still by by far their number one choice plan A and plan B yeah I think they will go for him I think they should go for him I think he is the manager that he, he, someone they've been waiting for I actually I increasingly don't think it'll happen and I, I, I think there is there's a chance Solskjaer could end up with a job there's a lot of will from at the club to do well enough to get the job uh, but I think what it will come down to is ultimately that first of all 
Spurs themselves are confident they can keep Pochettino as much as anything, and this is what it often comes down to with Levy, because it's so legally ring fenced, it's so difficult for to to extract him from the club in that way. So, he, so even even if Poch was trying to force his way out, that would be a, it would be an it's issue. Expensive. Yeah, but I don't think I don't think Poch w- would force himself force his way out. He wouldn't want to cause a problem in that way. He likes it at Spurs, and there's a lot of talk around Poch himself that. His preference, when it comes right down to it, is arguably to stay because he's built up so much in that club. He's got so much invested. He enjoys it there, um, and and also there'd be a real sense of unfinished business. Uh, the one thing is, I, I suppose it's apparently he see like the potential wrinkle in that regard is that whereas Real Madrid he sees that basically as a job that comes up every summer. I, mem- I remember there was some talk last summer where. Someone in Spain said to me, Florentino, when you know when he comes calling and you say no to him, he doesn't go back. Well, that's not true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, he also uh, Florentino. Florentino hired his seventh choice last summer. Yeah. So, like the whole Real Madrid thing, you know, <laughs> I think it's pretty well established among every coach in the world. Like, you know, if Jurgen Klopp wants the Real Madrid job at any point, yeah. you can go and get it. Like, yeah. That's not a yeah. Exactly. If Tuchel wants it, he can go and get it. This is not a job. Yeah. The one is hard to get if you're any good. Yeah. And two, rare. Yeah, exactly. Know, because the opening it, comes up so frequently. Exactly. And, and there is maybe a sense from Pacino's side that this could be a rare opportunity to take, if it came to it, take over United at a good point to kind of... A low ebb for where they should be. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that could... But my inkling is that he will stay. But, you know, but again, you never know what like a lot can happen next week. If, if they fail to get Champions League... No, I, I think there's also the thing that you, you see you see what Poch has done at, at Spurs, and I get the impression, that obviously, with reason, he's very proud of that. Solskjaer, for me now, has, has put himself in the frame to the extent that like I, I can't see them going for someone like Zidane, or like there's no third party I think who could now possibly be attracting United. I, I don't know. It's it's Miguel hinted at it just now, but I think the what Solskjaer is showing is. Or, or reinforcing is that the Man United job right now was kind of undervalued. Um, that for the right manager, there are huge possibilities there because the squad is is legitimate. It is, uh, it can win, and it's. I don't know we we had kind of gotten it in our minds over the last few years with uh, between uh, Moyes, Van Hal, and and the third guy that. Um, that like suddenly everything was toxic there. You couldn't go near it. You couldn't deal with Ed Woodward. That they were going to buy badly, and that they were in the sort of being dictated to by agents and and everything else. But it's actually a situation where it looks like quite a good club to go manage now again. And I guess that is significant because you know in the book you've written so much about the structure of clubs. You know it's more about really the off field product and, and the Premier League as a whole and, and how these clubs became super clubs and everything the owners, you talk to owners, you talk to managers, sporting directors and you know from from what you've seen Man United has obviously become what it is but like kind of what was the what, which was of the interviews in here and there were some great ones, uh, we're talking about Randy Lerner who I think is an interesting one because of the disaster he had with Aston Villa but you know this is a guy who, who's been a an owner in many sports and there is yeah. there are so many tales of foreign owners who have come in and, and been stung by the Premier League there are other ones who have come in and, and succeeded really well kind of, which was the most interesting and, and rewarding interview you did for this book 
Uh, I, I mean, Randy Lerner is certainly up there. Uh, so just to, just to recap, the book is the story of how, how we got here in the Premier League, how from quite a, a parochial concern in, in 1992 when the clubs were um, hyper-local, they were often owned by sort of locally self-made men. When men were men. <laughs> uh, not that. But <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, it was like the era of Doug Ellis. Exa- exactly. Rodnodes. Um Well, the, exactly. You, you sort of made your fortune locally, maybe you owned a factory or something like that, and then you bought your boyhood club. Um, whereas today, it is this this playground for the, the 1% of the 1% um, who, who have come in from every corner of the world and, and see different reasons. They're not just investors in some cases. They're also, you know, burnishing their own images. They're also seeing it as trophies. You know, it's it's uh, it's all of that, and it's it's how it became this this sports and entertainment behemoth now um so with all of that you know the idea the the adventures of uh, randy lerner in the premier league were really fascinating to me because he came into it with the best of intentions um he didn't want to come in and like many other american owners kind of revolutionize the way people did business thinking hang on it looks like chaos over there what they need is some good old american know-how and we're going to do this above board in the right way and uh, we're, you know, they're under-marketed, under-everything else. Um, he wanted to come in and be sort of a classic custodian of the club. So he came in, he uh, made improvements to Villa Park, one of the grand old institutions of, of English football. He, he uh, didn't do up the supporters' pub. Yep, that was the big thing yep, they liked. He sank several million pounds into the pub. He, uh, <laughs> and, and he tells a story about running around Bloomsbury trying to get the, uh, the colors for the mosaic right in the Trinity Road stand. Um, so really, he wanted it to go well, and he was he was stung so hard by the reality that the, the Premier League is populated by there are a lot of good people in the Premier League, but there are a lot of charlatans running around as well, and people who are just in it to take your money, exploit the fat the little gaps in your knowledge, and and sell you lies. Um, and he got caught un- completely unprepared for a lot of that. And uh, one thing he says is that he. Um, that that he was quite dis- he was quite turned off by uh, Martin O'Neill in the end because O'Neill had run the uh, uh, Villa's transfer policy and sank a lot of money into players that he didn't think were had any resale value or anything like that. Martin O'Neill, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of late twenties yeah. sort of uh, British and Irish players, self-managing who, players, yeah, exactly. And uh, that that incident when O'Neill finally walked out on him turned him off completely. Lerner delegated everything to. Uh, to other people and the club went into a complete mm. freefall. But I mean, just having read the book, obviously, as a narrative in where we, uh, to explain where we are, how we are with the Premier League, it's exceptional. But one thing that really stands out for me is it's the amount of kind of scoops and basically unknown info that's in there. Um, I mean, so it, I think it's already been discussed in Second Captains, but for me, it was the, the story that really stood out was the, the meeting between Chelsea and Dean about Thierry Henry and whether... Abramovich could actually have bought Arsenal, which is kind of mo- almost the most mind-blowing aspect. But what, what, what kind of what stands out for you in terms of um, the, uh, so when someone was telling something and you said, "Hang on, wow!" <laughs> I mean, I, I love that story yeah. um, about uh, uh, about the Dean meeting with Chelsea because they kind of gone through the squad and and they weren't able to strike a deal for anyone. And that, that like, even as a as an insight into how business is done, that's quite interesting. That basically, Chelsea and Arsenal basically going through the Arsenal squad. Who can we take off you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and uh, and the guy they really tried to ship to Chelsea was Francis Jeffers, and uh, Chelsea, for perhaps obvious reasons, were not interested. 
and finally <laughs> finally they get to to Terry Henry who theoretically was off the table at that point and and Dean insists that he never tried to sell a player that Wenger wanted to keep but the discussion comes up and the price keeps spiraling up upwards and finally they get to about 50 million pounds bearing in mind that the the world transfer record was under 60 at that yeah, time yeah. it was still Zidane um and Dean slams the table and says for that kind of money why didn't you just buy the club and it turns out that Abramovich had been wrongly informed according to our source um, that UBS had said Arsenal wasn't for sale that's remarkable Um, and and you know it makes you think how much the complexion of English football could have changed because uh, Abramovich had also looked at Chelsea at at, um, uh, at Tottenham um, and they we heard the story from the other person in the car with him on his way to the meeting going up the Tottenham High Road to, to White Hart Lane. And um, Abramovich looks around out the window and, and turns to his guy and says, this is worse than Omsk, which was uh, <laughs> yeah. a pretty grim outpost where uh, Sibneft had a refinery at the time. Now, at what point, actually, did you think, what, 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 when it was really kind of not conspicuous, where the Premier League went from what we described as this kind of parochial concern, which it really was. I mean, it was a league populated by... English, Scottish, Welsh, Irish, and basically Norwegian footballers. With the, uh, uh, this is essentially the makeup of the division. But at what point do you think it really started to become like what it is now, which is maybe the world's true international league? It's it's a good question, and it, it happened in stages. I think you know one of the first watershed moments in terms of its international growth was Abramovich, um, because not only did he come in and upend the the whole transfer market and upend the the traditional order of English football as well because up until that point the Premier League had been a story of Man United and Arsenal with, with that one Blackburn Rovers interruption um, suddenly Chelsea which was a club that hadn't won the league since the 50s is not just a contender but a major force and uh, a sustainable one um, and you know with a guy who came in from abroad that they knew very little about when they sold the club to him you know the, the diligence was minimal they they googled him, found him on a Forbes list, and uh, and didn't know much else about him at that time. So, you know, and, and suddenly they went shopping in all of Europe's biggest clubs, and that that was a huge turning point. There was the internationalization a little bit before mm. um, the Bosman ruling. Yeah, the Bosman which ruling, which wasn't necessarily a, it wasn't a Premier League thing, but it affected the Premier League. And, and, and the Premier League made the most hay they from benefited it. Benefited, yeah. And, you know, Wenger's arrival as well, mm. suddenly signing, s- seeing that the market inefficiency was non-British players. Um, all of that contributed. It was really a confluence of factors. Um, but also what, what made a difference in terms of growing the game abroad and that, that no one ever matched was kind of the, the genius of people like Richard Scudamore, who pushed to sell the rights abroad so forcefully and so diligently um, because what they you know when the Premier League was first drawn up they were actually paying foreign broadcasters to carry the games and they, they didn't ever think that the international market would be such a huge thing mm. and instead you've got Scudamore coming in they take the rights back from the agencies that were selling yeah. them in bulk um, and go and decide we're going to sell them individually in each market and build all of those relationships and, and that was what Scudamore did so well. well. It's, I, I think it's actually one of the key insights of the book really um, and one of the main conclusions that I mean there's so many images of pre- perceptions of what the Premier League is as a cabal and all the rest of it but really how Scudamore particularly his own role how he redefined it was basically just almost 
as a salesman for a show. And, and, and this ultimately came down to t- TV rights. Exactly. The, the Premier League is first and foremost, uh, foremost a TV rights-selling organization, um, a little bit like Formula One. And, you know, the contrast for me is, is clearest when you look at Scudamore versus other leaders of, of big global leagues. You know, you compare him to, and you'll know this, said Roger Goodell at the NFL, who sees himself at he makes forty-five million dollars a year, yeah, sees himself not. as uh, the the chief disciplinarian in the league, the chief ambassador of the league. Scudamore gives very few interviews. You don't see him around so much, and his his main job is maintaining those relationships with with broadcasters all over the world to the point where he's even sending them handwritten notes and thanking everyone at the end of every season, not just saying, not just the, the people who buy the rights, but also the people who don't have them, because he says, your best friends may be the people who are future partners. I, th- I think Scudamore is a really interesting character in, in all of this, because, as you say, he's kind of quiet, kind of stays behind. You think about the amount of interviews you see given by people like Javier Tebas, who's the president of La Liga, and a complete clown. Uh, but Scudamore is a guy who... You know, I, I was talking to him at an event recently. It was a Premier League event, kind of for his last year in in charge of the Premier League. And I guess it, you know his legacy might be tainted slightly by the the awkward way in which he left with that five million pound payment, which is pretty unnecessary considering how much he's earned over his career. Um, and he said to me that the key that the other leagues don't understand is that the Premier League is fundamentally a great broadcast product. Not just you know it's good football, entertaining football, whatever, but I remember when, when Palace came up in, in uh, was it 13, 14, the Holloway season, and the club had to spend one and a half million pounds on upgrading the television gantries in, in the old Arthur Waite stand, that awful one you see opposite the press box, um, so that they could fit out ultra HD cameras, 3D cameras, all that sort of stuff. They didn't have the infrastructure there to, to ho- hold those. And one of the Premier League regulations was that you had to have that now. Mm-hmm. So what they were doing was, and they had to upgrade the lights as well, the floodlights. And what they were doing was essentially making sure that the product that you see on television is as good as it can possibly be. It's bright, it's vivid. It, you know, it's, it's the stadiums are full. Exactly, it, it's colours, and and you see the other leagues trying to do this via the back door and not getting it right. Like the league are finding clubs when there are empty seats on television. That is not getting to the root of the problem. The root of the problem mm-hmm. is the ticketing or, or the match day experience, whatever. Premier League clubs have done great things to improve the match day experience and all that, all that stuff, but. Fundamentally, what they focused on is making it a great broadcast product to look at across the world. And, and you know, you, you look, sometimes you look at games from abroad and it looks like they're being filmed in the 80s. You know, it's yeah. live. Like, I find it with like Napoli, the Champions League, whatever. It looks like exactly. you're so far away. And it's old. It's rubbish. And, and that's kind of the, the key insight from going back as far as the, the founders of the league, people like David Dean and Martin Edwards and Irving Scholar, the guys who saw the future and had been spending a lot of time over in the states had seen the nfl and had this this major realization that you can't necessarily just assume that the support is always going to be there and you you have to give the fans something back for for what they're paying and because they're not just supporters they're also customers and i realize that might sound a little bit cynical but they realized this very early on and suddenly it became geared to the customers and so if you're giving them a high quality product from the broadcast from the match day experience and ultimately from the football, because that, that caught up as well, um, then they will stay loyal. But one of the traditional arguments made about the Foundation of Premier League in particular was that it was basically a, a kind of a greedy cash grab by a group of self-interested clubs. Um, now, again, wh- whether you agree with that, I was almost beside the point, but you, you actually, 
in terms of their vision, more so say than what they did, you 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 more generous to them in the book. I think you think they, it wasn't just kind of a said here's an opportunity. It was actually there was real foresight. You know, the, the Premier League is really a, a product of the '80s, and in many ways. So yes, it it is the greed is good era, but it's also the the kind of trauma of English football in the 80s as well. You know, there had been the stadium disasters, the football was bad, the, um, the, the, s- the stadiums themselves and the experience in general was not a pleasant one. It was, you know, you were kind of taking your life in your hands to go to a game. Um, so there was a lot of, there, there was kind of a panic among owners as well to change this. And, you know, some of the connections that um, we were kind of surprised by, but that make perfect sense, were, for instance, the Taylor Report after Hillsborough immediately uh, required clubs to upgrade the stadiums, switching to all-seater facilities. What the n- one of the knock-on effects was the clubs realizing, hang on, we're going to have to pay for these upgrades too. And that was a key factor in getting teams on board for the breakaway and the foundation of the Premier League. I, I, I don't think we'd kind of put two and two together before um, until we were working on this book about how all these things were interconnected. I, th- I think, uh, frankly, you know, we've only scratched the surface of how many pages? 340-something. 340 odd pages. This is the paperback version I'm holding in my hand. The book is called The Club, How the Premier League Became the Richest, Most Disruptive Business in Sport. You didn't write it alone. We should say your colleague, Jonathan Clegg, yes. at the Wall Street Journal uh, also played a huge part in that. Um, RRP is fourteen ninety-nine, <laughs> But we're going to give one away. Is that correct? Yeah, we're, sure. yeah, I've got a copy for sure. So uh, we're giving one away, which uh, we'll get Joshua to sign. Uh, if you leave a review for the podcast... Um, the, uh, just telling us how much you love it, basically. Then one of you uh, will get selected at random, and you get uh, a copy of the club, which is, uh, as we uh, <laughs> have alluded to in the last fifteen minutes, an excellent book. So uh, thank you, Joshua, for coming in. Thanks very much for um, having me. I think we should probably cover some other football, any other business, basically, in the last, say, three or four minutes. Uh, Johnny isn't here today, if you're wondering, uh, because in his own words he hasn't finished Joshua's book um, and he, he doesn't want any spoilers uh, he said I've read up to the Blackburn winning the title Fergie is furious but please don't spoil the ending so Johnny's not here um, it, it goes well for the Premier League yeah. I don't want to ruin it for anyone but it goes well uh, w- while I've got you as well just uh, a reminder that you can join Independent Minds a new subscription service from the Independent that gives you access to exclusive articles events ebooks and a new app, all with no advertising, because everyone hates advertising. Subscribe today for just 15p a day. Visit independent.co.uk slash podcast to find out more. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you Everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Any other business? Um, spying. Spying. <laughs> Miguel, uh, it, uninfused by the rest of the Premier League, uh, the big story of the week, Thursday, Friday, emerged that while Frank Lampard was training Derby County for their huge game against Leeds on Friday night, sixth uh, against first, and a man with pliers and binoculars was found at the perimeter fence. Police were called. The man was uh, like detained but not arrested because he wasn't actually breaking the law. Uh, it turned out this man works for Leeds United. Marcelo Bielsa has assumed all blame for this. Uh, he said that he's been doing this since he was Argentina coach in 2002. What do you make of it all? It was, it was quite a furore um, for what I basically thought was a bit of a fun story. I thought it was mostly hilarious. To be honest, just to go, especially the, as, you, as you kind of allude to, the <laughs> rudimentary nature of it, just the amount of pliers. Um, it's not, I mean, I think Josh is about to get into it. It's just <laughs> not sophisticated spying at all. And the kind of the moral formulation after I found ridiculous. And I mean, I did see, uh, there was a lot of journalists, obviously, who, who criticised it. But the one thing that hasn't been able to answer, or they haven't been able to answer, I suppose, is in what way is different to something I would see as completely legitimate, which is what amounts to, I wouldn't say espionage, it's journalism, but amounts to kind of revealing key details from, from a team you cover before a match, or revealing a, a first 11 you found out. It's, it's, it's ultimately, it's taking someone else's secrets for your own end. Um, I, I love this story because... It's it's such small potatoes in the end. It's uh, the the idea that you know one guy spying on a uh, or sort of using pliers and binoculars to to have a look at you know half an hour of a training session uh, before you play a match, like set piece training or something. You know, like, like what are you going to gain by like seeing who runs to the near parks particularly? Right, and and you know, assume with the amount of information we have today. You know the amount of tape that's available and the amount of analysis. I mean, how much, how much is that really going to add? But what I what I enjoy is the you know when you compare it to spying scandals in some other sports, this is this is so <laughs> bush league. Um, you know, you look at baseball for instance, where the uh, St. Louis Cardinals scouting database was hacked. You know, people might go to jail over this. Uh, there there are criminal charges happening. Um, you look at famously Spygate in the NFL. Yeah. Um, when there were illegal recordings being made of uh, of behavior on sidelines, and signals. It was, yeah, um, it was, they were stealing they, the signals. They, they were bas- uh, because teams that were within the division played each other twice, and so they were filming <laughs> when division teams came to their stadium. They were filming what they were doing, uh, the signals and the play calls, so that when they played them again, they knew what was going to come. Basically. And this, this was uh, the New England Patriots. Um, and then, or even, uh, but know, the punishment for that was severe, though. Yeah, they lost the first round draft pick. Um, which the NFL and uh, Chief Disciplinary and Roger Goodell came down on them very hard. But the the other thing is, you know, there are there are sports where any any kind of you know stealing someone's uh, little piece of info or a piece of technology amounts to corporate espionage, which is you know you look at Formula One and <laughs> when when 
someone walks down the pit lane and uh, steals a design for a front wing or something like that and eventually runs it back up to the R&D department and, and impacts change, um, you know, that's that's Ferrari stealing from McLaren or whoever you like. Yeah, um, yeah. I bet in football terms, these are, as, you know, again, going back to the book, these are huge billion-dollar corporations now. And, and why wouldn't they be trying to get something over on their business rivals? Right, and, you know, if... Uh, if you have a billion dollars, then and you're really concerned about this, then maybe a, buy a taller hedge. Yeah, better fencing uh, is the way. Um, Miguel Delaney Fencing Co. is is available if you are looking to upgrade your perimeter. Um, go at Miguel Delaney on Twitter, and, and he'll help you out. Oh, yeah. um, I'm only picking on him because he's not paying attention because he's on his phone. Um, as I say, researching a piece. Yeah, researching a piece uh, <laughs> while I'm talking to you. Uh, Joshua, thank you for your time. I know you need to go, and so do I. But uh, thank you very much for coming in. Um, thank you for telling us about your book. And, of course, if you're listening to this, then you probably are already interested in the Premier League. Uh, <laughs> but if you want to find out how the Premier League came to be, what it is right now, then this book is excellent for you. Is it available in audiobook form? It is. Uh, excellent. He's reading like Stephen Fry, <laughs> like Ricky Gervais. Uh, well... I think you'll be reassured that it is someone with an English accent. It's someone with an English <laughs> accent, um, which, which is great for us because, you know, we're taking back control. And uh, Miguel, thank you for coming in as ever. Uh, yeah. We're looking forward to your piece uh, on everything that you've just said for the last oh, hour. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's actually just the best thing with the podcast. Yeah, yeah, it's the best it's thing it's about the podcast. It's always for ideas. I had no ideas coming in, and now I've got a few. Uh, great. And as I say, join Independent Minds, a new subscription service from the Independent that gives you access to exclusive articles, events, e-books, and a new app. All with no advertising. Subscribe today for just 15p a day. Visit independent.co.uk slash podcast. And until next week, I've been Ed Malian. Goodbye. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.